This is the Relearn Our History podcast. Journey with us as we travel from Central all the way to Eastern Africa. Let's relearn our history. Matondo Nayo Lokola. The year is 1876, the first week of the year, and His Majesty, the King of Belgium, is having his breakfast. His usual routine involves reading the newspapers delivered that morning. This particular morning, his attention is drawn to an article at the bottom of page 6 of the Times. As he always does when something piques his interest, he brushes the front of his blue tunic. The article is by a correspondent based in Luanda, Angola, which is a Portuguese colony, and describes briefly that Lieutenant Cameron, a British explorer, had reached the coastal city after a grueling three-year journey across Central Africa. Cameron had become the first white man to make this journey and would be sending notes on his findings. The interior is mostly a magnificent and healthy country of unspeakable richness. I have a small specimen of good coal. Other minerals such as gold, copper, iron and silver are abundant. And I am confident that with a wise and liberal expenditure of capital, one of the greatest systems of inland navigation in the world might be utilized. And from 30 to 36 months, begin to repay any enterprising capitalist that might take the matter in hand. And what was the king, if not an enterprising capitalist, that needed unspeakable richness? The king then sent word to Cameron that he would reimburse him the total amount of his expenses for his expedition. Befriending Cameron was the first step in the direction of his colony acquisition plans. So who was King Leopold II? His father, Leopold I, married Princess Charlotte of Wales, who died at childbirth. This marriage earned Leopold I good diplomatic connections. So when Belgium came looking for a king in 1831, he was offered the kingship by the Belgian government. Belgium had only gained independence in 1830 after several years of Spanish, Austrian, French and Dutch rule. When Leopold I was king, Belgium was facing multiple threats with internal warring peoples, the Flemish versus the Wallons and warring sects, the Liberals versus the Catholics. Belgium was an uneasy union of the French and Flemish speakers. This is what Dutch spoken in northern Belgium was referred to as Flemish. The French speakers generally thought themselves superior to the Flemish-speaking farmers and farm laborers. Leopold II was supposed to have weak lungs and a lame leg, and when he was younger, as a prince, he used his health as an excuse to take what he called health cruises to India, Egypt, China, and other countries. When his father died in 1865, Leopold II inherited the throne. He was a tall, bearded man who was often seen as aloof and hardly put a foot wrong in public. But those who interacted with him often knew he was complicated, bland but charming when necessary, stubborn about certain things, such as getting his hands on a colony. Leopold once described his country as petit pays, petit gens, small country, small people. He was obsessed with carving out a piece of the world, not the people, those are not important, just the riches for Belgium, beyond their tiny piece of the world. He believed that colonies gave modern states power and prosperity, which we know from history is true. He also wanted for the Belgians to see themselves as an imperial people capable of dominating others and that is a direct quote. Most of Leopold II's government officials thought that the idea of a colony was bad business, but Leopold was determined to acquire one even by using his family fortune. He was after all one of the richest men in Europe. 
He had inherited millions of francs from his father and had grown his wealth by investing in Suez Canal shares that at the time was seen as very risky but paid off handsomely for those that invested in the canal. Before he was king, Leopold had taken a keen interest in acquiring a colony already and had entertained such harebrained ideas such as buying the lakes in the Nile Delta, draining them to claim the land as a colony. As king, the first route Leopold took to acquire a colony was asking some of the poorer colonizers, such as Spain and Portugal, to sell him a colony. He asked Spain for the Philippines and Portugal for Angola or Mozambique, or the island of Timor. Both colonizers didn't bite. He then turned his eyes to Papua New Guinea, asking the British if they had an interest in it. But the British warned him that Papua New Guinea, although beautiful and potentially full of resources, was a harsher climate than he thought Belgian settlers would survive. On that morning, in 1876, when Leopold saw Cameron's proclamations about Central Africa, a plan began to ferment in Leopold's mind. A way for him to gain a colony without all the opposition from his government. Later that year, Leopold invited six explorers to his palace in Brussels for the first geographical conference on Central Africa. Leopold had already been to London to talk to Cameron when he got back from Angola and had a courtesy visit to his cousin, Queen Victoria. Yes, the same Victoria that the lake that spreads across Kenya, Tanzania and Uganda is named after. What Leopold learned in London was that the investment wasn't worth it for the British, but in this, Leopold saw an opportunity for his long sought after land to claim. Cameron told Leopold that he had tried but failed to convince the British to extend the protectorate to the regions in the Congo that he had explored. Cameron had signed a couple of treaties with community leaders in the regions he passed through. These treaties are a whole series in themselves. But these were useless if the British didn't want to claim the lands as their own. At the conference with the explorers, Leopold spared no expense entertaining his guests and hid his personal motivations and interest in Central Africa, declaring Belgium to be a small neutral state happy with her lot. At the end of the conference, the explorers had drawn up plans to open up Central Africa for exploitation and to the Western capitalists in the name of spreading the three C's, Christianity, commerce, and civilization. At the head of this new crusade was Leopold, who came out of it looking like a great philanthropist willing to use his personal fortune to heed the call of David Livingstone. Of course, Leopold's real aim for this crusade is best explained in his own words. I do not want to miss a chance of getting us a slice of this magnificent African cake. But how would Leopold go about figuring out how to exploit the Congo region? One man, Henry Morton Stanley, was the answer. Nani? Who's that? Who knows you are? Huh? Oh. Who's that? Is that the one? Mm. Who... <laughs> oh, the one Henry Morton Stanley was born John Rowlands in 1841 as a non-marital, also referred to as illegitimate, son of a farmer and a butcher's daughter in Wales, England. Abandoned by his parents and relatives, he grew up in a workhouse. So this is an institution where poor people could work in return for shelter and food. But he fled to America as a teenager where he changed his name to Henry Morton Stanley. Eight years after he arrived in America, he had held several jobs. First as a soldier, then a sailor, then a journalist. In 1869, at 26 years old, he was sent by the New York Herald to find David Livingstone, who had gone off in search of the source of the Nile and had not been heard of for several years. 
he found Livingstone in Tanganyika two years later. This job and his encounter with Livingstone got him started on the explorer career path. Funded by an American and British newspaper, he set off again in 1873. At this time, most European maps showed blank spaces across vast expanses of the African continent. Of course, the lands weren't uninhabited. The Europeans just had never been to most of the interior of Africa. Given his hard beginnings, it's easy to see why Henry Stanley, a.k.a. John Rowlands, would have been drawn to a path that, if successful, was sure to bring him some fame and hopefully fortune. He could basically tell the Europeans what was in the continent they knew nothing about. He traveled from Zanzibar, through Central Africa, down to Luabala and the Congo River, in modern-day DRC, to the Atlantic Ocean. Although similar to other Western explorers in his ignorance, Stanley was not well-liked by his counterparts. And reading some of his actions when traveling through our lands will help understand why he would become a good partner for Leopold, the man that would kill millions. In one of his books, Stanley narrates how he came upon a hostel community in Bumbire on Lake Victoria, also known as Lake Nyanza, Namlolwe, and so on, as he was traveling from Buganda. The community's warriors threatened him with their spears and arrows and took his boat's oars. Stanley got himself out of there by killing 14 of the community members, but none of his people were injured, just his pride. Stanley then decided to later come and take his revenge on this community. He came in and shot at the people in this community, killing at least 33 men and fatally wounding many others. Stanley never bothered to count the number of casualties he left behind, but the number must have been in the hundreds given the multiple episodes of violence towards locals he recorded in his journals. In his exploits and surely many others of the other explorers, community members where he passed through were so afraid of slave traders that they either denied Morton's passage or fled. In some cases, community members were shot and killed when they resisted. Exploration was indeed not a peaceful endeavor with white men backpacking across Africa, naming our mountains, rivers, and lakes after their fellow white people or themselves. There were large caravans and guns involved, and a lot of times violence and death. But this on-the-job experience, exploring, harming, exploiting African lands and communities, would earn Stanley an important spot in King Leopold's plan to acquire a colony. Nani? Who's that? Who knows you are? Huh? Oh. Who's that? Is that the one? Mm. Who... <laughs> oh, the one that... Mm. In 1877, just under a year after Leopold's Central Africa Conference, Stanley resurfaced in a small trading post called Boma on the Congo estuary. It had been 999 days since he had left Zanzibar, set on accomplishing all the tasks he had promised himself on his goal to fulfill or usurp Livingstone's legacy. Stanley was starving and delirious when he got to Boma, but he confirmed Cameron's claims of great wealth in the Congo. And when news of his resurfacing and the news he brought reached Leopold in Brussels, this solidified Leopold's interest in Central Africa. Leopold then hatched a plan to take the Congo right from under the British, who did not see its value and whose people were growing wary of the government's appetite to take up colonies in Africa. Stanley on his previous expeditions had discovered that taking over the lands occupied by communities in the Congo would not be difficult. One, the communities defending themselves using spears, arrows and old muskets, while he had new Snyder rifles. Two, the Congo River Basin did not have a large, all-powerful kingdom that could fight back. The earlier kingdoms were now weak, 
having been weakened by centuries of slave trading. The communities in this vast region were most times small, and there were very many of them. About 200 different ethnic groups, speaking more than 400 languages. So at first, Stanley rebuffed Leopold's propositions on funding another trip to Central Africa and setting up operating bases for him. But after failing to interest the British government in taking up the Congo region, he finally accepted Leopold's invite in 1878. And after receiving instructions of secrecy so the British wouldn't deduce what he was up to, Stanley returned to the Congo Basin in 1875 under the employer of Leopold II. He would be paid 50,000 francs for every year he spent in Africa, and Leopold would fund his caravan. So what was the job? It was to build three stations and a road from the lowest cataract of the Congo to what he named Stanley Pool, but was actually named Mpumbu or Leknukuna by the locals, and it's now Pool Malebo. It's also the border between the modern states of Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Republic of the Congo. In 1882, after three years of difficult infrastructure building and cajoling, threatening, maiming local community leaders, Stanley finally set up a station at Pool Malebo to Leopold's satisfaction. The station was named Leopoldville. It's actually modern-day Kinshasa. The Upper Congo Basin was where Leopold and Stanley thought they would recover the money spent on this endeavor so far, and so much more. Leopold's idea was to open up the Congo Basin for trade to finally exploit the great wealth in the region. But he wasn't the only one with such ideas. Much like Stanley, a French explorer, Braza, for whom Brazzaville in the Republic of the Congo is unfortunately named, had been trying to convince France to colonize a part of the Congo region. At first, the French ignored his campaign for Congo colony until 1882. In 1882, the French had suffered a humiliating defeat in Egypt, which served to increase the French public's appetite for acquisition of new colonies. Years earlier, Braza had signed a treaty with the king, or Makoko, of the Azinku Kingdom for the commercial and political rights on the north bank of the Pool Malebo. In 1882, the French cabinet decided to ratify this treaty and therefore establish a French colony in the Congo Basin. But it wasn't just Leopold and the French that were interested in the region surrounding the Congo Basin. The British had been trading on the Congo, as had the Germans and the Portuguese. Ratification of the Makoko Treaty by the French made the British fear that France would seek to declare protectorate over the whole region. Diogo Cao, I am probably not saying that right, traveled around the mouth of the Congo in 1482, which had led to Portugal claiming the region in the 15th century. So, the British sought an allyship with the Portuguese by supporting the Portuguese's claim over the Congo Basin. But this strategy backfired and had everyone now angling for a piece of the region. So in 1884, partly motivated by the mess that ensued in the Congo, Otto von Bismarck, the German Chancellor, called a conference that was then dubbed the West African Conference in Berlin. But it later became known as just the Berlin Conference. Not all 14 nations represented at the conference had stakes or interest in colonizing Af an African country. But the major colonizers, the Britain, the French, were there and unsure of Bismarck's intentions. Leopold II and his company, the International Association of the Congo, were not invited to the conference, but Leopold had a plan. Leopold's plan to influence the conference was through his network of diplomats and investors. His company flag, borrowed from the Congo Kingdom in Angola, was blue with a yellow star, 
Have you seen the Democratic Republic of Congo's flag? It looks very similar. So, for the Berlin Conference, Leopold had two goals. To undermine the British-Portuguese treaty, recognizing Portugal's claim over the area surrounding the mouth of the Congo River, and to get countries to recognize the sovereignty and flag of his association. He first used one of his contacts, Henry Shelton Sanford, to get the American president, Chester A. Arthur, to recognize the association under the guise that Leopold wanted nothing more than to spread civilization and promote free trade, and would leave once the region was established. Sanford sold it to the president that Leopold would be doing what the Americans had done in Liberia, creating a state that freed African-American slaves could move to. This idea was actually very appealing to the racist leaders from the American South. They had been advocating for a return to Africa solution for all the African-American slaves that were recently freed. The American president and later the US Congress fell for Leopold's ruse of philanthropy. In April 1884, the US Congress voted to recognize the International Association of the Congo. Leopold had won support from the president and the Congress in the US for what he called independent states in the Congo under the benevolent protection of a charitable society. Of course, this was all nonsense. Next, Leopold, through another contact, approached French Prime Minister Jules Ferry to recognize the association's sovereignty, which the French did for all intents and purposes, believing Leopold's ruse that his Congo exploits were purely philanthropic, but they had a price to ask for this recognition. That price was that Leopold should not sell his possessions to any power. They had Britain in mind here. Of course, Leopold did not plan to sell the Congo state he planned to establish. But to sweeten the deal further for the French, he signed a preemption agreement with them that the French must be the first ones to get the option to buy the Congo state should Leopold decide to sell. This in legalese is called the right of first refusal. This preemption agreement served to improve Leopold's chances of getting Britain and Germany on his side, since the two countries wanted Leopold to succeed, lest he fails and France acquires the millions of square kilometers of Central Africa. At first, Britain was hard to convince, since some people at the British Foreign Office had seen some of Leopold's treaties with communities in the Congo. And the treaties asked for commercial monopolies, and therefore knew they knew Leopold was out to make a profit not some great philanthropist. But Bismarck, the German chancellor, thought the preemption agreement that Leopold had signed with the French to be a serious enough threat to free trade. So Bismarck secretly granted Leopold recognition of sovereignty for his association in the Congo, with conditions of his own. Going into the Berlin Conference in 1884, Britain was therefore the only key player that had not recognized Leopold's association's sovereignty in the Congo. Bismarck was afraid enough of the French taking over Leopold's claimed territories in the Congo, that he used the recognition of Leopold's association during the Berlin Conference as a condition for Germany supporting Britain in their ongoing challenge with the French for the Niger Basin. Since Niger was very important to the British, they agreed to recognize Leopold's Congo Association sovereignty. With the sovereignty question now all but solved, Leopold then had to negotiate with the French on where the French territory began, and this was literally a bargaining session with each side offering up various options for the border and money with no regard whatsoever for the people that lived there for generations. Finally, Leopold got the Portuguese to relinquish their claim of both banks of the Congo River and instead agree on who gets which strategic points on the banks. This marked an important point in the history of the Congo Basin. 
having given Leopold effective control over vast regions of the basin, effectively 2.6 million square kilometers. To gain an understanding of just how large of an area Leopold claimed, that region would later become the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It is the largest country by landmass in sub-Saharan Africa, the second largest in Africa, and the 11th largest in the world. By contrast, Leopold's Belgium is only about 31,000 square kilometers, only just over 1% of the Democratic Republic of Congo's landmass. By April of 1885, Leopold had the Belgian parliament pass a bill declaring him the king of what he named the Congo Free State. I would make an educated guess here that nobody told the people in the Congo region that they now had a new king many thousands of kilometers away. British newspapers were filled with praise for Leopold as a great philanthropist that would bring their version of civilization and all the other stuff they thought our people needed forced down their throats. Leopold then set about preparing for his role as king of the Congo. According to an article in the New York Times in 1885, King Leopold is greatly pleased with his new dominions, which are many times larger than Belgium. Indeed, it is thought that in view of the disturbed state of things in Belgium, due to the quarrel between the liberal and clerical parties, the king may resign the Belgian crown and retire to the Congo. Whatever may be the king's intentions, it is well understood that he will soon pay a visit to Africa. It goes on to describe why and how he's preparing so hard for his Congo kingly duties. He knows that were he to carry to Africa the manners and customs of a Belgian king, his darky subjects would misunderstand him and will be dissatisfied, as he cannot by royal decree turn them into civilized and clothed Belgians, he means to convert himself as far as possible into a native African. It then goes on. If King Leopold really does go to the Congo, with the intention of remaining there, he will doubtless be warmly welcomed by his subjects when he first appears among them in his high hat and his blue shirt. His skill in performing on the banjo will please the people, and his knowledge of the ancient and classical conundrums of the African race will gain for him the reputation of a man of profound learning. Has he reflected, however, that as a native king, he will be expected to make rain? One of the chief duties of a native king is to supply his people with rain on demand, and the result of a failure to meet such a demand is usually a revolution, followed by a banquet at which the dethroned monarch is the principal dish. If King Leopold is not ready to face this danger, he had better not go to Africa. He knows very well that no European can make rain, whatever a native king may be able to do. And he need not expect that he can compromise with his subjects by establishing a weather bureau. On the whole, King Leopold would be wise to stick to his Belgian capital. The Belgians may perhaps accidentally shoot him in the course of a heated and public theological argument, but they will never think of putting him to death in consequence of a prolonged drought. In this episode, we talked about how King Leopold II of Belgium came to acquire vast swaths of the region surrounding the Congo River in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Next time, we'll explore how the king went about ruling his new kingdom. Spoiler, this series of episodes is not named the Butcher of the Congo for nothing. Leopold's rule would be the beginning of what would become a dark period in the history of the region and one of the cruelest exploitation of our people, their land and resources. Please subscribe to the Rilano History Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can write to us at rilanohistory at gmail.com. 
Did you learn something? Are there topics you'd like us to cover? Any resources you think we'd love to dive into? Let us know.